0: Well, let's go to Romans 7. How about it? Romans 7. We've been on a few months break from the book of Romans, exploring some other important places in the Bible, but we are back now to Romans 7 to continue our study through the book of Romans. Our passage for today is verses 1 through 6, Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Let's pray now and ask for the Lord's guidance and help father we thank you for your word we know that it is true we ask now that you would instruct us and change us by it for your glory and our good in christ's name we pray amen Amen. well when is it ever appropriate to end a marriage specifically so that you can marry someone else? Now that may seem like an odd question to begin with this morning, especially after Valentine's Day and coming off the heels of a marriage conference. But it's a question that's at the very center of the passage we have before us today. Indeed, the passage actually suggests there is a need for us to end a certain type of marriage. In fact, your very salvation depends upon it. But don't get me wrong, it's not the marriage that you think about to a husband or wife. It's a different kind of marriage. A marriage that we say marriage to the law. Let's consider that from Romans 7 beginning in verses 1, in verse 1 down through verse 6. Paul is continuing here out of chapter 6. Just pretend the chapter's breaks aren't there. Those came later. He's just continuing on. He's continuing an argument that we left about two months ago. So let me read the verses, and then we'll see how this picks up where we left off. Paul says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life. Of the Spirit so far in the book of Romans we've seen two major themes develop in chapter 1 through chapter 3 verse 20 we we saw how Paul laid out a thorough indictment against humanity the Jew and the Gentile namely that we are all under the power and curse of sin but from chapter 3, verse 21 on, through, verse, or through chapter 6, Paul then began to unpack for us the amazing kindness of God that was demonstrated through the work of Christ so that we can be made right with God. So chapters 1 through 3, broken, sinful, in bondage. Chapters 3 through 6, thus far, God's gift of grace demonstrated through the work of Jesus so that we can be in a right relationship with him. And as we saw through these chapters, through especially chapters 3 through 6, we were clearly instructed by Paul that we're made right with God solely through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and did what we could have never done on our own, and yet he died in our place taking the full penalty and judgment upon himself so that we can have hope, in short, Salvation, Paul has said, salvation does not come within you. It comes outside of you as a gift of God's grace. Now, that's a very broad summary. But as Paul gets into chapter 6, he realizes, and obviously he knows this already, that salvation is such an amazing thing. It is such a wonderful, mind-blowing reality that Paul even anticipates certain misunderstandings of it. You mean to tell me that we're all so messed up and so broken and so sinful and so rebellious against the holy God that he is going to give us salvation for free? He's actually going to to do all of the heavy lifting so that we as broken sinners can have a right relationship with him? Paul anticipates the misunderstandings of grace. In chapter 6, verse 1, you see it repeated again in verse 15. Paul in chapter 6 verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You mean to tell me that salvation is free? I could just continue on sinning and so that I get more grace. He picks up again in chapter 6 verse 15 and says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Because we are no longer under the bondage of the law, because we are no longer under this control of the law, we can just do what we want to right? Salvation's free, and so we can just live any way that we want, any way that we please. And Paul says, by no means. If that is your understanding of the gospel, you've misunderstood it. And so he continues now into chapter 7, explaining further, unpacking more of this this idea that, that that, that freedom from the law and and as as those who have received salvation as a gift of God's grace, in no way is that a permission slip for you to go on sinning, for you to continue in your your ways of rebellion against the holy God. Some had concluded that. Some had concluded that, well, this gospel that Paul preaches is is a license to go on sinning, and Paul is saying, by no means, in no way is that true. So the question that, that Paul is continuing to answer into chapter 7, does, does the gospel motivate us to continue on in sin? And Paul's answer is no. Quite the contrary. Quite the opposite. In essence, he's going to argue, and he continues to argue into chapter 7, that it's the law that actually motivates sin, not the gospel. It's actually the gospel that fuels and motivates righteousness in fruit. So the point of our text this morning could be stated this way. We are called to live in righteousness because we have been freed from the law. We've been called to live righteous lives, bearing fruit for God, because Christ has set us free from the grip of the law. And as we consider this this freedom, this release from the power of the law, we need to see and understand that it comes through this death that Paul is referring to here in chapter seven. So there are four realities about dying to the law that we need to unpack in chapter seven, verses one through six, so that we can continue to see Paul as he makes this argument that the gospel is actually the means to righteousness, not the the way to ongoing sin. And so just think about it this way. I know that kind of getting into a longer argument here in chapter seven about the law and the gospel and how all that fits together, but here's the point. Your salvation is a means that God has given. He saved you, forgiven you of your sin. He has saved you and made you one of his own, and the result of that is not continuing to live in sin so that you can get more grace. The result is so that you can live a life of righteousness, bearing fruit for God's glory and for his praise. That is his point here, and we need to understand that specifically as he talks about the, the, the death, the dying to the law, this divorce, if you will, that is encouraged here in the text not a divorce from a physical marriage but a divorce from this marriage or a release from being released from this law of this law that keeps us bound so let's walk through this together we need to see four things first of all we need to see the need to die the need to die from the law die to the law Paul's main idea here in verse 1 is quite simple. In fact, what you see here, and I'm going to to outline it a little differently just so that we can see see things uh, in reference to dying to the law, but basically Paul states a principle in verse 1. He illustrates it with the illustration of marriage in verses 2 and 3, and then he applies it in verses 4 through 6. So he states this principle, he illustrates it, and then he applies it. But we need to understand that as he states this principle up front in verse 1, He is making a point that we have a need to die to the law. He says there, do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Implied in this verse is a significant problem that all of us have. Significant problem. He's stating a need for us to be brought out from the condemnation that God's law brings to us. What does he mean here by the word law? I think that that's something that we could maybe need to answer up front. Simply put, he's referring to the Mosaic law, the written commandments of God, and I think that further proof of that is found in verse 7. We'll look at this next week, see a little bit of it today, where he actually references one of the Ten Commandments there. So to me, it's clear that he's, he's actually, he's talking about coveting there in verse 7, but in the context of a greater issue. The the law of God, the written commandments of God, the Mosaic law. Now, if we're not careful, we would take the impression away, especially in these first six verses, that Paul's kind of down on the law. He, 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 you'd take away the impression that he might think the law is a bad thing. But does he mean that the law is bad? Not at all. In fact, if you look in verse 12, Paul says that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In and of itself, the law is a good thing it's god's law it forbids sin it prescribes righteousness it's a declaration of god's will a revelation of his character the psalmist in psalm 19 said the law of the lord is perfect so the law in and of itself is a good thing the problem at hand is not at all the law as if something were deficient in the law the the problem is something is wrong with us And what the law does is it serves as a big magnifying glass, or spotlight, if you will, making known the problem that we actually have. It's like a mirror. You know, you you don't like what you see in the mirror, you don't throw something at the mirror and break the mirror and say, shame on you, mirror, right? No, that's how the law serves. It's just exposing what is true about us. It's good. I want us to go ahead and look at verses 7 through 12 because I want you to see how Paul sees the law here. He says, What shall we say? Verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Brothers and sisters, the law is simply exposing the great need that we all have. It states for us what righteousness and holiness looks like. And it shows us all that we fall short of that. So as Paul talks about here, this this idea of the law being binding on a person as long as he lives, he's saying as long as you have breath, as long as you are alive, you are bound to God's standard. His standard is perfection, it's holiness, it's revealed in the law, and you are held accountable to that. While the law is good and holy, what we need to know is that it does not contain the power and the ability to bring salvation. It only has the ability to expose and condemn. And as long as we are alive, we are being held accountable to this law, we are bound to it because God's made his standard of holiness known through it. And yet, we all fail to live up to it, which puts us all in an impossible situation. The only thing that can release us from this is death. And so what Paul does is he illustrates this from marriage. Now listen, don't get bogged down in verses 2 and 3 of Romans 7 thinking this is a full theology of marriage. It's not. Paul is simply using a concept from marriage to illustrate his point a theological point that he is making about our relationship to the law and our need to be related to Jesus in faith for salvation. So you're going to notice that this illustration seemingly breaks down pretty quick because it it seems to cross up certain things and certain concepts, and it does. You're going to miss the point. if You you just need to step back and see this illustration as making a broader point. Don't get too bogged down. Well, if this means that and that means this, then how can you say this and that? It's... He's not here, he's he's, he's going to write about marriage in other places. He's simply using marriage as a picture, as an illustration here. So just keep that in mind. So what he does, he says in marriage, one is legally bound to his spouse as long as as both are alive. All right, we say that in our vows, till death do us part. And all Paul is doing here is saying that one is morally bound to the law as a wife is legally bound to her husband as long as they're alive. The only way for that legal covenant to be broken is by death. And so it is with the law. Only when someone has died to the law can he or she be freed from it. Again, don't get too bogged down with that. If you follow that illustration, it's, it's going to, to seemingly break down. He's simply, saying, he's simply saying that one relationship is terminated so that another relationship can begin. And the way that that happens is through death. We need to die to the law. Now, how does that happen? That's the second point, the way, the way we die. How do we die? If, if he's saying, okay, and then illustrating in verses 2 and 3 that the only way for us to be detached, the only way for us to, to be uh, unbound by the law is to die, then what does that mean? Do we physically have to die for this to take place? Well, the death he's talking about is not a physical death here, ours. He's talking about something more. Let's, let's see it in verse 4. And verse 4 is the key to this entire passage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. That that verse summarizes the whole point he's making. It is the key to the entire point he's seeking to to bring home here the Roman believers by the Spirit to us. He's saying, Christians, you have died to the law. You have died. The the law is, is... is, is is God's standard. and the main the main point we need to be taking away is that the law, which is holy and good, is not the answer to our salvation. In fact, the only thing it does is it exposes our problem. Now, this would have been shocking to the Jewish believer. We know that Church of Rome had both Gentiles and Jews, and if you'd have been a Jew listening to this, you'd have been shocked to hear Paul say this. The reason you' have been shocked to hear Paul say this is because the Jew actually believed, that the law helped people not sin. They actually believe that the law prevented sin. Whereas Paul is arguing here that the law actually aids and abets sin. As an unbeliever, your sin, my sin, would be only provoked by the law. Now let that serve as a a warning here to, to those of... If you're here today and you're not a Christian... Let this serve as a a warning to you. If you think that somehow you can can be good or or, or you can be chill with God based upon some kind of moral self-improvement program, then you're deceived. There is no way possible for you to work your way into right standing with God. Salvation does not come to those who simply try harder at keeping certain rules. Salvation does not come to those who seek to be more disciplined, who read more of their Bibles, do more Christian activities. Salvation doesn't come to those who try to be kinder and do good deeds for others. All those things are wonderful things to do. And if you're seeking to gain salvation by keeping the law, you will only gain what Paul says in verse 5, fruit for death. In a song we sang this morning, Rock of Ages, Paul, or the, the hymn writer says it quite well. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal... No respite, no, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And if you're here and not a Christian, quit trying to earn your salvation. Quit trying to discipline yourself into the kingdom of God. Quit trying to balance the scales out in your life of trying to be better than you are bad. The only way for you to see God and to have salvation is for you to die. To die through the body of Christ. He's talking about the body of Jesus. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about through the body of Christ, through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. He says you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So in order for you to become a Christian, what has to happen is for you to realize that there's no way for you to get there on your own, for you to realize that God in his holiness has a holy standard that none of us can keep, and the way that he has brought us home, the way he brings sinners to himself is through the body of Jesus, the one, the true son of God who came to this earth. He lived a life of perfection. He obeyed the law perfectly, didn't break it, and yet he died in the place of our sin to take upon himself our judgment, and so that those who would forsake their sin and repent of it and turn and trust in Jesus would be forgiven and have salvation. Friend, that is, that, is how you, that is how you find hope. We die through the body of Christ. Verse six goes on even further and leaks dying with having been set free from the stranglehold of the law. He says, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Since chapter seven is continuing an argument from chapter six, I think it's important that we go back and look at a few verses from chapter six, as we've done already. But look at verses four and five. This death through the body of Jesus, I think, is described here. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This death that's being described here is this union that we have through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, through being united with him in his death and in his resurrection. This is the death we all need. Now you'll notice, there. we could say it this way, there are two deaths being described here. There's the death of verse 4 and the death of verse 5. You need the death of verse 4 to escape the death of verse 5. You have died through the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. Verse 4 says, again, you've died through the body. It could also be taken, you were made to die. It's a, it's a passive kind of verb there where you, this happens to you. This is not something you work up in yourself. The verb here is, is describing something that, not that the Christian does to put himself to death, but something that's done to him by a divine act. You were made to die. You have died in this way. When we're united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, we are then released from the law's authority to condemn us and the powerlessness of the law to save us. It's a beautiful gift of God's grace. Then we see the purpose of this death. We see the need for it, the way it comes about, and then the purpose of it. It's all right there in verse 4. So that... Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law because you needed that. Law only exposed your sin, verse 5. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. That's Jesus. So here's where Paul's illustration is helpful. It's, again, it's not that our goal is simply to be unbound from the law. The purpose of our dying to the law was so that we would be married to another. That's verse 4 so that you may belong to another when we die to the law we in essence gain a new husband i know in the illustration it's the husband that dies but paul's point is not so concerned with the details of who dies and who doesn't as much as he's concerned to make the point that death ends the first relationship and makes possible the second that's his point just as death breaks the legal bond between a husband and wife so death The believer's death in Christ breaks the bond which previously yoked us to the law so that we are now free to enter a relationship with Christ. And the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters, is that because this new relationship involves resurrection, that's ours for eternity. There's no vow you make with Jesus that says, till death do us part. There will be no death. There will be everlasting life when you're united by faith to Christ. We die to the law so that we may belong to Christ, but there's a further, we could say, number four, the result then. Again, there in verse four. You have a so that, now you have an in order that. In order that we may bear fruit for God. So you've died to the law through faith in Jesus, through the body of Christ, so that you can belong to him in order that you can bear fruit for God. Paul highlights this result in two ways. In order that you may bear fruit for God in verse four and verse six, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. I think what what Paul is getting at here is he's pointing in verse six specifically to what we call the new covenant. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, you see where Jeremiah refers to this new covenant. Jeremiah 31 beginning in verse 31. He said, behold the days are coming. And Paul is in essence saying the days are here. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. So that's the prophet Jeremiah. Then you have the prophet Ezekiel that also refers to the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, The Lord says through him, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And Paul is saying that that new covenant promise that the prophets gave us is now the reality in Christ. You now have been taken out of this old written code, out from under the weight of that written code, and you've now been connected to a new husband with the Holy Spirit now present in your life to enable you to walk in God's ways. You're not going to get that through the law. You're not going to get that from the law. The only way you're going to get that is to die to the law and to be united in faith to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the new covenant, the salvation that we have through Jesus, is actually what gives you the ability to walk in the commandments of God. Paul is saying the new covenant has arrived in the person of Christ. The law actually kindles the desire to to sin and produce more sin than had there been no law. But the new life that's brought about by the Holy Spirit actually gives us the ability to obey God and bear fruit for him. So as he brings us all together, really, he, he's, here's, here's what he's saying. He's pushing back against this idea that justification by faith alone somehow gives us a license to sin. He said, not at all. It actually, this justification, not the law, actually enables us to bear fruit and serve in the new life of the Spirit. Sin actually increases when we're under law. But bearing fruit in righteousness actually increases when we're under grace. Another way to say it is this not only is a person who's dead to the law able to do what is right, he will do what is right. Justification by faith is therefore not a license to sin, but actually the only way we find true freedom from sin. So that, don't forget the so that's that are in this text. So that we bear fruit for God and so that we serve in the new life of the Spirit. Now, what does all that mean? I know that's a lot of kind of heavy law and heavy stuff there. What? Pastor, tell me how this matters for me today. Let me give you six things. Six, yeah. Quick, quickly. Number one, whatever you do, do not depend upon law-keeping for your salvation. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you're not a Christian, don't think for a moment, I said this earlier, but I'm just reminding you, don't think for a moment that you can somehow please your way into heaven. Don't ever think you can gain salvation by keeping God's commands, or don't ever think... Well, that's how salvation was in the Old Testament. They just obeyed and God brought them to heaven. No, it's always been by faith. The Old Testament says by trusting in God's promise for what he would bring, and now as we look back to how God has fulfilled his promises. (laughs) Number two, don't think you're free to sin if you're dead to the law. If you use... Christians, if you use the gospel of God's amazing, beautiful, sovereign, wonderful grace that he has lavished upon you, if you use that as an excuse to sin, you're in a bad place. We've all done it. Don't think for a moment. You've you've done it probably today today. Lord, I'll just think this because I know you're going to forgive me anyway. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Don't think for a moment that salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is a license to sin. And therefore you'll go on sinning knowing you're covered by grace. That is a distortion of the gospel and that is a lie. Don't buy it. Number three. Understand that a righteous life is the fruit of dying to the law. It's interesting, isn't it, that before you become a Christian, that all the law does is it kind of harbors sin and incites it. Only when you've died to the law and placed your faith in Christ the one who kept the law perfectly, do you begin then having both the desire and the ability to keep God's laws? Read the New Testament. I know there's all this discussion about the law, but when you get to the New Testament, you think that the law is only in the Old Testament? Friend, Have you read the New Testament? Have you seen all of the things we're commanded to do? Only in Christ can you do that. So understand that Righteousness is actually the fruit of dying to the law. If you can go on sinning and think you're a Christian, if you can claim to be a Christian and yet go on sinning, you should na- take absolutely no confidence in your salvation. If you think I can be a Christian but I can continue to sin, you should take no confidence in your salvation. Now, what I didn't say there, lest I be misunderstood, I did not say that if you're a Christian, you'll never sin. We do. We will. That's the next sermon. And we'll talk about that struggle next week. But what I am saying is that if you can go on sinning without kind of any guilt or conviction and yet claim to be a Christian, you should take no confidence in your salvation whatsoever. Paul's whole point is that the salvation we have by grace produces fruit, produces hatred for sin. It produces this desire to please God and to live for him. Number four. Be careful how you view unbelievers. You need to see unbelievers for who they truly are. They are in bondage to the law. And many of them, most of them, have no idea they are. And they need the gospel if they have any hope of being released. So the last thing that a Christian should do is harbor some kind of critical and judgmental spirit toward those who are blinded to the effects of the law in their lives. Don't be surprised when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever, Christians. Don't look at them like they're crazy. You are like that too. And you still are. God just saved you by his amazing grace. And he'll save them too. And part of the means of him doing that is by you being patient and pointing them to the only hope that they could ever have of being rescued. Number five, don't be motivated in your Christian life by external regulations. As Christians, we should be motivated by the gospel, the new life of the Spirit. Even as a Christian, you and I are going to be tempted to think that somehow our performance will some, in some way gain God's favor. Listen, if you don't hear anything else the rest of the day as a Christian, hear this. And this is the beautiful reality of, of the gospel. There is absolutely no more favor that you can gain from God than he's already given you in Christ. If you think you've got some brownie points to make up for with God, if you think that somehow you can can make God like you more than he already does, you're misunderstanding. There's no way that God can love you more than he already does in Christ. And so, yes, yes, Our obedience and our fruitfulness as a Christian will please God. And our lack of it will grieve Him. But don't be motivated in the opposite direction. Don't think that somehow I've got to earn favor. I've got to keep favor with God through the things I do. Friend, you've gained God's favor in the gospel. So that should motivate how you live. Not the opposite way. And number six, don't consider the law as bad, but as good. Only when you've been transformed by the grace of God can you genuinely say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation all the day. Grace, saving grace, is what produces That kind of desire and love for God's commandments. Friends, there's there's a way. There's a way that harbors and entices sin. But there's also a way that leads to righteousness. And who you're married to makes all the difference in the world. Are you still married to the law? If so, you're only going to see sin enticed and increased. Or are you married to Christ? You died to the law. been married to Christ through faith. Trusting in Him because, as verse 4 says, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. What a great gospel we have. And what a great Savior we serve. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning in knowing what is true. And that truth is that you have saved us. Not based upon our performance. Not based upon any kind of moral improvement program that we have excelled in father you have saved us by the gift of your grace through the finished work of your son and father we thank you we know that jesus paid it all father sometimes we live life and we grow confused and we grow weary And as Christians, it's good to be reminded of how it is that we are in a right relationship with you today. So Lord, would you encourage us with that? Would you encourage us with the fact that you have you've paid it all. You've done everything needed. Lord, you have, Lord, if we are to be saved, it is not by keeping your law. It is if we're to be saved, it comes by you and you alone. Father, it may be that there are some here today that that aren't walking in faith. They're they're not walking as a Christian. They're 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 still seeking, they, still seeking to please you through their own efforts. God, would you show them today that no matter how hard they try, there's not enough good that they could do to please you and your holiness. And Father, that you, you have reached down to them and given everything needed to be right before you through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for all that you've done in him. It's in his name we pray, amen.